Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. This podcast is brought to you by SAP Pioneer. Well, hello, listeners. I'm Karis Palmer and co-hosting with Rachel today. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm very well. It's very exciting to have you on finally, Karis. Thanks, Rachel. So today on the show, we've got something a little different. After I was chatting with the University of New South Wales, Professor Paul McCarthy late last year on some new research he's working on about what makes a successful entrepreneur. He's categorised a big data set of people into six different types of successful founders and what makes successful teams when you combine different personality types. So yeah, welcome, Paul. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your research to date? I am uh, Paul McCarthy. I am an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales in computer science and co-founder of a company called League of Scholars. We're a data science analytics startup. In my research role, I work on a number of independent um, research projects. And over the last five years, my colleagues and I have been exploring a number of areas of interest looking at um, computational social science. So using AI and machine learning, large data sets to try and understand some of the fundamental questions in economics, in psychology, in history. We had a paper published about three or four years ago now, and we found some really interesting things. So by looking at around 100,000 people in over 3,000 different occupations, we found that people in the same occupation had surprisingly similar personality traits. So what was your hypothesis with the current research? So the current research is about the science of startups. Every job, if you like, has its own personality. That was the main finding of the previous research. But it's not really that clear how this relates to roles that aren't that well defined, like those of an entrepreneur, for example, or a startup founder. So I guess the first hypothesis we're exploring here is, is the personality of startup founders measurably and consistently different to that of regular people? Are startup founders like normal people? And we all know they're not, of course, (laughs) myself being one of them. Um, And can you use personality to distinguish founders from employees you know can you use the features or personality features of individuals to predict if you like who who are the founders and who are the employees and then I guess secondly many in the tech and startup world know the hypothesis that you need a hacker a hustler and a hipster to create a great startup and now this is a concept that's been around for a while it was actually created by an Australian expat tech entrepreneur Elias Bazans, who lives in California, and it's subsequently become this kind of part of startup folklore over the last decade that there are three types of founders uh, that you need to create a great startup. Um, and, of course, the concept of hackers has been around for a long time. You know, it's sort of this 
idea of a, a wired tech person who is curious, um, a bit anti-authoritarian, and it comes out of that culture of early tech communities, which were pretty organic and involved a lot of curiosity-led exploration, trying to hack phone networks and so on. And, and hustlers is also a recognised term, another archetype. Um, Steve Jobs was often called the ultimate sort of hustler. You know, it's someone who's a business person, you know, good at um, convincing people of things that are being that are being formed, you know, that aren't aren't real yet and are being invented and made up, I guess, in, in the in the product development sort of space. And this idea of a hipster, I guess, is a, a newer concept, someone who's perhaps um, on the edge of trends, has a sort of an insider's knowledge, um, you know, there's the kind of broader use of it as a cultural stereotype and pejorative term for people that are too smart by half sort of thing and, you know, uh, drinking the right sort of coffee and so on. But um, there's also this sense of someone who's an expert, you know, who does have some sort of deep knowledge and knowledge advantage and, and in the context of a startup, I think that's someone who has some sort of industry expertise, um, someone who's, you know, good with people and numbers and someone who's a tech person. So that was our starting point for this work. What did you find? What makes a successful founder over a car wreck? Well, we've found a number of things. So we've confirmed the initial hypothesis to, to test, which is startup founders are not like normal people. So we can predict distinguish between successful entrepreneurs and founders and successful employees. So we created two data sets, um, each with about 5,000 people in, in, in each and both of whom we had detailed, accurate personality features. And we trained a machine learning predictor that could distinguish between successful employees and successful entrepreneurs with an accuracy of around 80% using personality features alone. Would you be able to to go into what you found? So let's talk about those personality types and the success and the factors that affect success and failure. Yeah, so the six types of founders is the key finding and the six types are leaders, accomplishers, operators, developers, fighters and engineers. And the interesting thing is that we found that these correlate to the folklore of the hacker, hipster and hustler. And it turns out that we have three different types of hackers. So the operator, developer and fighters are all different types of hackers. In other words, they're people in technology roles. Their personalities are characterised by the features of people in those roles. So they have high conscientiousness, orderliness. They're not necessarily the most extroverted or agreeable people, uh, but sometimes that's, you know, that's important in these roles to be able to be out, to be objective. And um, there's two types of hustlers, so the leaders and accomplishers, uh, and then there's the hipster, which is the engineer role. In terms of team success, so, you, yes. you know, you, the third part of your hypothesis was about what a good team looks like. What did you find there? So we found uh, personality diversity at a team level is one of the key factors of success. And we found also that the personality combinations when compared to other factors, so, for example, what industry you're in or what location you're in, they have much more of an influence. Uh, 
So it's interesting when you do this multi-factor analysis, you can get a sense of the relative importance of these different types of factors on the on the success of startups. And personalities are one of the most significant factors that determine a startup success. And additionally, we found that there's three types of team combinations, one of which is a hacker, hipster, hustler, are the most successful combinations of founders. And you can have up to 12 times the probability of succeeding as another firm um, if you have a startup that has this, this foundation combination team. One of the observations we made was that um, the basic hacker and hustler combination are in many ways opposites. The German philosopher Schopenhauer, who had the idea that romantic partners often choose one another on their complementarity, you know, if you like, opposites attract. And so they try and, um, you know, balance each other out, you know, so look for complementary strengths and weaknesses. And I think that the, at least with the hustler, uh, and the hacker combination, you know, they are in a lot of ways opposites. And I think there is that complementarity. That's the thing I think you get at a team level, you get a bench strength when you've got personality diversity. And I guess one of the key findings, we're finding that personality diversity is really one of the most powerful things you can do to make sure a startup succeeds. Thanks, Paul. Do you think that this research could be tailored to teams within larger firms as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think undoubtedly we we can extend this research into enterprises because obviously startups are a microcosm of the the broader economy and especially teams around creating new products and services. But but more broadly, any cross functional team at an enterprise level will be able to benefit from this research and will be able to build on this and and see what sort of benefits there are. Just one last question. Was there anything in the research that surprised you in the findings? Yes, yeah, there was. I think one of the things that was fascinating is um, the individual features that that do predict entrepreneurship. So there are there's not one factor, but there are a handful of factors that are more significant. And the most significant factor is this feature, this personality feature of adventurousness which is perhaps at the at first instance not that surprising, you know, that one needs a sense of adventure. And, and adventure in this context, in a, in a personality context, means an interest in novelty. You know, some people are more interested in novelty and uh, variety innovation than others. Um, and it's this um, appetite for adventurousness. And one of the observations I've had is, a lot of uh, successful entrepreneurs seem to also have an interest in adventure sports. So I'm curious to try and understand, you know, I know that there is this association often between climbing, outdoor sports and so on. Extreme sports. I mean, there, there's some interesting, when you scrape below the surface of those personality types, like in the big five, there's some really interesting sort of traits we talked earlier about this idea of agreeableness and and I guess the other one was not getting angry not getting angered quickly maybe you can talk a little bit about that yeah there is this um there, there, there was something that we discovered which I found really fascinating and and could be a whole different piece of work one of the six types which we've labeled accomplisher it's one of the two different types of hustlers. There's two types of hustlers. There's the leaders 
and accomplishes. Um, the leaders are the are the the typical CEOs. They're very outgoing, agreeable, um, altruistic. Generally, um, have high openness in lots of facets and so on. Um, but accomplishers are really interesting because they're super conscientious and they're 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 sometimes a bit more technical. So they're kind of like technical leaders often. But one of the distinguishing factors is they have very low uh, anxiety and anger levels, so they're, they're highly emotional, emotionally stable. So much so that it's quite remarkable. It's like an absence of any sense of anger or anxiety. And, um, I mean, they're quite fortunate, these people, because they've obviously got uh, somewhat blessed lives. Um, and it's not to say that they're, they're angels or anything. I think people need to understand that this emotional stability thing is just some, is just one of a, a number of these personality features that researchers have found that most people basically have varying degrees of, but these people seem to be free from, largely free from a lot of that. And uh, they're typically in roles like um, CIOs, various types of senior managers in the in the general economy outside the startup world. There was another thing that was really interesting we found. Um, a question came up about timing. So, for example, we looked at, we found that companies that were founded in certain years were more likely to be successful. And because we're looking from a point in time in 2022 backwards, and someone has suggested, you know, is there a generational effect? Um, You know, and I've been a bit sceptical, I must say, about generation theory. And I actually heard one of Australia's leading generation theorists, Mark McCrindle, uh, on the radio. And um, I had a chat to him and we were interested in the question, you know, are millennials, for example, less or less or more likely to be entrepreneurs? You know, is this is there a sort of sense of, you know, generational personality? And I don't think there's been any quantitative research in this space, but we worked out how to do it and we did a little study. So by looking at data on 300,000 people in the US who were born uh, after World War II and onwards and are a part of a particular generation. Because we got access to this data, which has a sliding window, we could look at people who are in different generations but also the same age. So we could compare people that for that were, for example, 20 but of two different generations. And so this, this study showed comparing like for like, so looking at a 20-year-old who's a Gen Z and a 20-year-old who's a millennial, do they have the same personalities? And the answer is they don't. <laughs> and there is some personality characteristics that define the generations. And so that's, again, future work. But it, there is some suggestion that there will be waves of entrepreneurs and we will see these waves of entrepreneurship. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now a few words about our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. For many of you from banks or insurers listening to this podcast, it's easy to get excited about the innovation we're talking about, but it can be daunting taking the digital leap. How can you build or upgrade to the latest technology to deliver all that competitive edge without risking, literally in some cases, breaking the bank? Well, launched as the financial services spin-off from SAP, Finear offers the best of both worlds, combining the agility of a startup with the experience of a best-in-class software company. 
That means future fit technology that gets you to market fast combined with reliability and scalability. So if you're looking for a new fintech who's a safe pair of hands, check out sapfinear.com. So our next guest is Michael Blakey, who is in Singapore and has been a full-time angel investor since 2000. More recently, he co-founded Cocoon Capital, an early-stage fund investing in companies in Southeast Asia. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Very excited about uh, today's talk. Excellent. So, Michael, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to found Cocoon Capital. I guess by going back to the to the 90s, I was uh, an entrepreneur. But I quickly realized uh, that I wasn't the world's greatest entrepreneur. Um, I had some of the very bad characteristics uh, of a founder. Um, I was very lucky that I was able to get an exit. Then the dot-com boom was happening at that time. And I thought the internet was going to change the world, but I didn't know anything about it. So I made two choices. First off, I decided to join an internet startup where I witnessed how you can spend 50 million pounds and achieve not much. And then also I thought I would invest in some startups and kind of learn by getting involved and in, in supporting the companies that I was investing in. So I ended up investing in a lot of like deep tech and enterprise um, kind of software. Um, and I did very well out of that. And then in about 2012, uh, I got itchy feet. I guess I've still got some entrepreneurial blood in me. Um, so I had started my career in the US. I'm a Brit at heart, obviously, from the accent. Um, I haven't quite lost it yet. Uh, I decided that the best thing to do is go somewhere where I didn't know anybody or anything. So I traipsed on over to Singapore. I met up with a, uh, my now co-founder, a guy called Will Klipkin, who's also an ex-entrepreneur and actually has been an angel investor for as nearly as long as I have, but has been based in Southeast Asia since 2002. And we set up a fund, Cocoon Capital, and that's back in 2016. I think as an entrepreneur, you've got to kind of break the rules to find out how far you can push the barriers before you fall flat on your face. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, Michael, let's talk about the inner entrepreneur that is in some of us and, and I guess not not at all in some of us. Mm -hmm. I've just been speaking with Paul McCarthy about his new research on the role of personality in startup success. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm keen to know in your experience how highly VC firms rate personality and how they assess it. I think personality, I mean, first off, if we go kind of one step up from that, I think especially at the pre-seed stage where most companies don't have kind of any product, any team, and they're living on everything they're doing is based on assumptions. 90, 95% of an investor's decision is based on the people, the team, the founding team, or whoever they've got. And maybe 10% is actually on the problem statement. Everything else is pretty much, you know, guesswork. And even when you go to later stage, the, the management team is still core to any investment decision. So if you break it up in terms of like behavior, knowledge, kind of that way, I would say for me, behavior is probably the most important thing. Even if you have the knowledge, but you believe you know everything and you're closed-minded and you can't build a team around you, then you're going to fail. You know that, that you know you might have the odd one kind of out there that can be successful but on the whole the majority of people cannot build a successful company by themselves. 
um, if you need to raise money, you need to have somebody who can tell a story, um, somebody that can kind of sell a vision. So for us, behavior is critical to um, our investment decision. Now, obviously, kind of when you're meeting somebody, they're always on their best behavior. Um, so kind of how do you, how do you, you know, first impressions count, always do. Like the, the first thing, uh, which is kind of sometimes outside the founder's hands, there's obviously things they can do. It's that first connection that you make with uh, the investor between the investor and founder. But for me, I've got to at least like and respect the person. Um, it doesn't matter what else they're doing. If I, if I can't stand being in the room with somebody, um, I'm not never going to invest in them. Um, however great the idea is, because when you invest at this stage, you're looking at like an, at least an eight to 10 year kind of kind of journey. And one of the things I've also noticed about behavior is it can be something that can be adapted. It can't be totally changed. If you're an asshole, you're an asshole that, you, you know, but um, there's something that we use called, and it's actually from Australia, it's something uh, called fingerprint for success. Um, and it's a tool that looks both on the individual and the team. And it looks at kind of your behavior and your motivations. And I think those are two things that are really critical. And it's actually focused on um, evaluating entrepreneurship. So they've talked to thousands of successful entrepreneurs and they've gone through kind of what are the behaviors, what are the motivations of the successful ones? And then they've kind of mapped this out. And it's something, and the thing that I like about it, it is something that um, they, they they don't say, like with my Briggs, it's kind of, this is who you are, that's it. It's pretty much impossible to change. With Fingerprint for Success, they say, look, to be a successful, you need to be stronger in X or Y. This is how, this is how you need to think. This is some training. This is a, so you can actually see over a period of time if you actually, you know, kind of, it's, it's built by a coach, but you can kind of self-teach yourself as well. And you can actually improve on those behaviors and those made of motivations. But it doesn't look at you as an individual. It also looks at the team. So not everybody is going to have all the strengths and weaknesses that um, that you need to be successful. So you kind of like need to look at on a team and do they work as a team? Do they communicate well as a team? Can they work with you? Do you believe? Um, so, and it's one of the reasons why, like, I, I think um, a lot of investors always look at teams rather than individuals in terms, especially like co-founders. You always say, I, I mean, I'm one of those idiots that keep on investing in sole founders. Uh, it does cause me problems. Um, but um, the, the reason is it's very hard to find one person that has all the skill sets you need to actually build. And the reality is, is at the beginning, you can't really hire that talent and that experience that you need in a startup. So you're kind of looking for that at the at the beginning. And then if you look at the, at the one of the sayings I, I, I kind of heard many, many years ago, and I heard the full saying is, you know, in the UK, we see the glass is half empty. In the US, they see it as half full. And I love that. And then somebody pointed out to me, that's only kind of, and you want that kind of the op op optimist and the pessimist as part of the team. Because if you're both optimists, you're both pessimists, you're never going to get anywhere. But then somebody pointed out the third part of the, or the last part of that quote. He said, you also need somebody who actually questions why the glass is twice as big as it needs to be. Somebody that has challenged just basic norms. Like you always say, you know, somebody who thinks outside the box. But fundamentally for me, 
a entrepreneur doesn't even recognize the box. It just doesn't take any, you know, the minute you have a box kind of in your imagination, you're already restricting yourself in the thoughts and what you're trying to do. So you need somebody who's just going to challenge the basic concept that you're thinking is, why do we have a class that is twice as big? And it can be one of the, the, either the optimist or the pessimist, but you need to have that kind of, let me say opposite attract. That's something that you really need. So for me, behavior, so is, is, and the motivations is like critical for the decision-making. So we get them to do this test and then we kind of take them through it. But then also we try to have multiple kind of touch points during the due diligence. So it's very easy to fake one meeting, but if you try and it, you know, so what happens quite often, investors will never kind of admit this openly, is when they meet the team for the first time, they pretty much decide then that as long as they can get the deal done, they're going to actually invest in this company. The due diligence and everything is just to kind of double check their, their kind of gut reaction and also make that make sure no flaws and make sure that their gut reaction is, is right. So they want to. So sometimes I see investors actually delay doing a deal because they want to get to know the founders more. You know, purely so they'll just have meetings for the sake of meetings. So they've already kind of know the information. So the entrepreneurs out there, if you have a, a meeting with an investor. And it's they're asking you the same questions they've already asked you. You're like, you've got all this information. Don't get frustrated. It is literally the investors just using it as an excuse to get to know you more and see how you react. Mm-hmm. And then kind of something else that we do, and I, maybe I'm giving away some kind of like secret, I think that secret though, is there's certain times in a meeting, I am just an arsehole. I'm just really difficult, really obstinate. I'm just kind of like, I want to throw a grenade into this kind of relationship because you want to see how founders react when things aren't going according to plan. And when you're making an investment and everybody's on their best behavior, it's kind of hard to actually see um, how they're going to react. Because for me, it's easy to be best friends when everything's going well. It's when things are going tough, you want to see how they react. Are they going to shut off from you? Um, are they going to kind of like um, not tell you or not kind of like, or just kind of, not not do anything just go get kind of like freeze so you want to see how they can think on their feet how they react to you because there's always going to be difficult discussions in any startup even if you look at my canva i'm sure if you talk to the founders and you talk to the boards and the investors there's been difficult decisions over the years and there's been difficult conversations where they've really been pushed to the edge but normally when you see a successful business is people have reacted well um so for me, you sometimes have to manipulate the situation just to see how people will act in those times. That's really interesting. So, you know, if we're going back to this idea of the kind of optimist and the pessimist and Paul McCarthy's research talks about, you know, and, and other people have talked about the hacker and the hustler and that combination. I'm interested in when you've seen that go wrong. So, yes, you know, you do need complementary personalities, but they might be opposites. So have you seen it go pear-shaped sometimes? Yeah, I mean, we had a we had a company, and and you know, if you look at kind of like the hacker is more the kind of the tech, the person who's a, more the product guy, and it was a sole founder, and amazingly smart, smart, amazingly successful in his career, first time entrepreneur, but he didn't have a co-founder, and his his view was, how hard is it to be the CEO, and. Um, he was like, whatever we said, he was like, so in the end, we had to say, look, here you are, we're going to let you roll, we're going to help you, and we're going to support you. Um, but 
in our view, you should be kind of focused on what your strengths are, which is obviously around the technology and the product. You're, you're a visionary, like that's what everybody knows you as. If you want to get involved on the, not just on the commercial side, but kind of building the team, doing the marketing, all of these finances that, that will help you, but we'll see how it goes. And within six months later, it was quite obvious that he was floundering. So we had to come in, we talked to him. And when we kind of mentioned to him that maybe we should bring in somebody to take over that CRO, I think he was grateful. It's like he attested it. Um, I think if we said at the beginning, like we have to, we're not going to let you even try that. We're going to find somebody who's who's going to do it. I think that would have damaged the relationship because this is all about like relationship building as well. There's got to be trust between the founder and the investor. So sometimes you have to take that risk as, as an investor. We're, we're wrong as many times as we're right. And so we're going to give that, but we're going to monitor it and we're going to try and help you. So one of the areas where Cocoon is different is a lot of the founders that we meet are they're first-time founders, um, especially in Southeast Asia. There's not a huge number of like serial entrepreneurs because we do deep tech. We do a lot of people who are coming out of academia, haven't had any kind of like commercial jobs. So making them suddenly a CTO or a CEO of a business is kind of guaranteed to fail. What we find though is that they're all really smart people. So we actually run like an MBA program for each one of our founders and the founding teams as well. And we take them through kind of like a knowledge. And one of the big mistakes that I made in my early career is that I always used to say, well, it's just easier for me to do. Oh, you need to redo your marketing and branding. Let me just do it for you because that's that's going to save a hell of a lot of time and stress. But the problem is, is the founders don't learn. And when you step away from the business, they're going to be left floundering. So within the kind of MBA, it's more kind of these are the tools, these are the things that you need to think about. If you need more, we can bring in experts. But we run this program over like a four to five month uh, period for each founder. So they can learn everything from how to run a board meeting, how to recruit and hire people outside of their knowledge base. You know, because it's always entertaining to see kind of a CTO coming from a tech background, trying to recruit somebody from for their head of marketing. You know, how do you know the right questions? How do you know uh, who to say, especially when, when it comes to salespeople, because salespeople are, are great at setting themselves more than anything else. So if you don't know the questions to ask, then you can potentially get yourself into, into trouble. So for me, it's like you've got to look at the founder and you're never going to find the perfect founder, the perfect team, but it's understanding even before you invest what the risks are and trying to mitigate those risks by either the support or kind of saying, setting something up. So within that deal I discussed, there was there was a mechanism where if we brought in a co-founder, you know, obviously you need to give them equity and everything. There was a mechanism within our deal that if that had to happen, it was already pre-agreed. If it didn't, it would have just fallen away. Interested in, if you think about fintech sector, it's probably fair to say there's a lot of hacker product engineer types in that world. Yeah. And in the research, um, there was a really interesting nugget of information, which was that they found that a lot of the more successful entrepreneurs they looked at had one kind of dominating personality trait, which was that they don't experience negative emotions. Like they're really quite, you know, they don't get angry. You know, they're really quite yeah. good at moderating their kind of behavior and and how they feel generally in dealing with things. So to your point about, you know, sometimes you've got to be an asshole to see how they react. Yeah. Have you seen, you know, on the other side of that coin, if they are kind of quite flat 
you know, not emotional, <laughs> if you like. Mm-hmm. Can you and have you seen those people turn around and become the hustler or being better, at, you know, being passionate about selling their product as opposed to passionate about the, the the nuts and bolts and the nerdy discussion versus the this is a deal, this is a global changing, you know, product that can impact the world, those sorts of discussions, which you, a lot of those people can tend to be a little bit sceptical of having. Yeah, I mean, we always say, like, and from the investor point of view, the best person to sell the, the the product has to always be the founders. And you do get, and even on the technical, even the technical ones who aren't kind of don't come from a, a sales background, quite often they are brilliant salespeople if they can talk to their own. Sounds very wrong, but their own kind. If they can, if a technical person can talk to a technical, it's it's fantastic. Uh, sometimes, if they've got to like sell to. Uh, more like the, the CFO before they can actually get something, they do struggle. But there's something that you can teach them the things that they they need to understand. And it, it's you you can kind of build a playbook for them. Actually, where those type of founders really struggle, though, is actually talking to investors. And the reason being is that, and this is for kind of any founder, um, 99% of your time is selling to a customer. So it's what your bread and butter is. It's what you're comfortable. It's what way your knowledge is. Because if you if you build a product for that space, you know their problems. You know you know how to you know you, you know their industry well. The problem is is like maybe 0.1 percent of your time is actually talking to investors, and what investors need to hear is totally different. I would say 80 percent different to what you would sell a customer, and. A lot of the time, founders have no knowledge in terms of how, what the motivations and the inner workings of a VC or an angel investor work. So what they tend to do is they tend to take their sales pitch for their customer, add one or two slides to it and kind of pitch it to um, the investor, especially in the early days, kind of anything up to like series A. After that, you normally have kind of new management come in or kind of work around so they support that. But at the beginning, it's got to be the founder that actually goes and talks to an investor. So most of the time you find these amazing founders with building kind of revolutionary businesses, can't even get meetings with investors. And the problem is, is like normally the first point of contact is either via email or via sending the pitch or doing a quick kind of kind of five minute pitch. If you're not telling the investors what they need to know, and they're seeing two, three, four thousand presentations a year, I've seen a lot of great companies. I'm like, why the hell have nobody invested in this company? Sometimes you kind of doubt yourself, like, I'm, I'm, am I drinking too much of the Kool Aid? Am I, if I, you know? But more often than not, it's because they haven't had a chance actually to sit down and actually spend like an hour um, to actually just talk. And, you know, I think because I've been doing it for so long, I know that quite often what they tell me in the pitch is not actually what they're doing or kind of like, I know the questions to actually ask the founders to actually kind of get to the information that I need. So it's one of the reasons, like a lot of a lot of times when you have that first meeting with an investor, they give you half an hour. I actually always insist on having an hour because it quite often takes a lot of questions to actually find out really what the business is doing. It's always been on my to-do list is to take some of my best companies and take their original decks that they actually gave to me and kind of look at it compared to actually what the business is doing and or, or, or did 
uh, and is now doing. And I think it could be it could be an interesting experiment, but that that requires time. So maybe when I retire at some point, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> Sounds like a fun retirement project. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just lastly, Michael, how do you think the VC market's going to shake out this year? Obviously, last year's bit was you know a lot of storming and norming going on. Um, keen for your thoughts on what might happen this year. I look at it from the early stage. I'm an early stage investor. Um, so I, I think we haven't been as impacted as a lot of the later stage, because at the later stage, the valuations were extremely high. Um, a lot of businesses were more focused on buying growth than actually building a proper business model. At early stage, you know, one of the big differences between kind of like seed investing and kind of growth is that when I put money in, the conversation is how do you take this $1 and make it last you five weeks or seven weeks? Like how, how, like how do you extend your runway until you found product market fit? When you're at the growth stage, it's more if how quickly can you spend this money so I can put more money in? Like get growth, I'll put more money and you're kind of like feeding the beast. So at the early stage, there's always been kind of a bit more sensitivity in terms of, of spending money and how to use money. And it's much easier to cut costs when there's hardly any co costs to cut. Um, valuations don't really change dramatically, um, mostly because it's normally you need X, I'm taking 20%. Kind of, it's, it's a very simple and there's normally a limit to how much a seed company can raise. So in Southeast Asia, you very rarely see, especially for first time founder, and I think around more than like one, one and a half million. If you look at the average size of, of a seed round. So if you you kind of get to see what the pre-money valuation is, when you're at the growth stage, it can be anything. So I'm actually quite positive for this year. I think a lot of the weaker companies have failed. I think uh, in 2021, it was a record year in Southeast Asia for, for fundraising for VCs. So there's a lot of dry powder that they've been sitting on. And I think a lot of last year for the, the bigger VCs was A, wait and see, but B, supporting their current portfolio to make sure they survive and they have funds for the next. The, the way that VCs work though, is they need to deploy their money within a two to three year window. They can't afford, I, I've never heard of a VC returning money because they can't find invest it because also pretty much guarantees they won't be able to raise their next fund. So I think, you know, a lot of VCs have been kind of monitoring how things are going for the last year, um, supported their current portfolio, but now they're going to be actively looking to invest. Um, I think at the, the series A to C, I think the valuations are going to come down. I think the type of businesses they're looking at, they're going to look at ones which have a have a business model that makes sense. So those businesses that are going purely out and saying, I'm just raising money to buy growth and I'm going to figure out how to make money, you know, later on. I, I don't think, I think they're going to find it very hard to raise funding at this point in time. And I would say for this year. At the seed stage, good companies always are able to, to fundraise. It's just going to be slightly more difficult. I think those that are kind of on the edge, kind of on the terms of risk aversion, I'd say investors are kind of like, they're going to invest in companies they feel highly confident. They're not going to, what I would call, take Hail Marys. We kind of like the founders, we're not too sure on the business. It's kind of, uh, yeah. In in 2021, they're like, hey, we'll put the money in. I think now they're like, let's, they'll say that, that I'm sure a lot of founders out there have heard this. This is really interesting. Can you come back in six months time? Because uh, VCs never want to say no if they can help it. 
Um, but that's normally saying because th- th- there's just too many. They don't believe in the assumptions that are, the founders are coming with them. Well, thanks, Michael. Um, so where can people reach out to you if they like what you're doing, they like your approach and they want to pitch to you? If they want to pitch to me, uh, please either reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, or you can drop me an email at michael at cocooncap.com. Or if you're a founder and you just want to send me your deck, if you just uh, go to our website, and I'm sure we can put it on the link below, um, that uh, we, we can apply online. So by applying through uh, our website, it means that you're guaranteed that the whole team will look at it. If you send it just to me, you potentially you're just you're, you're risking that I'm having a good day and that I like the space that you're in. Thanks so much, Michael. It's been really great having you on the show. Many thanks for having me. All the best. I'm Karis Palmer, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. Rock solid technology, bold creativity. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.